Father, thanks for your goodness to us. Uh, as we sang, as we're reading, you are a God of mercy, kindness, grace. Pray we'd experience that this morning as we look at this last picture of David's life for us, that we would see how you grow your people. Uh, even as imperfect as we are, you continue to pursue us and allow us to grow through the power of your spirit, uh, the power of your word, the community of your people. And we desire to grow. And so would you help us see that this morning? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be transformed into the likeness of your son? And meet us this morning as only you can. We ask it in your name. Amen. Have you ever tried to grow anything before? Um, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, a plant. Maybe it's a mustache you're trying to grow right now. Um, there could be tons of things that you tried to grow. One of my first memories ever, when I was four or five years old, um, my family, we were living in Southern California, and I remember learning the concept of growth, that the apple I was eating, there were seeds in the middle of this apple, and then if I take the seeds and I plant them in the ground, eventually what happens is an apple tree grows from these seeds. And my four-year-old mind at the time started running down a race of, what this could look like for our backyard. So as I finished my apple in my immaturity of understanding how growth works, I took these seeds and I, my four-year-old self, I went out and I found a spot and I was envisioning what an apple tree could look like in our backyard that we could climb on it, we could pick apples from it. And so I took those seeds and man, I planted them in the ground and I go, I waited. And then nothing happened in a week and I was like, this is garbage. Like this doesn't. This is this is supposed to. This is what it's supposed to be. I had an incomplete view of what growth actually looked like. And sometimes we feel that way in our Christian life. We have this idea of what growth looks like. If you come to Jesus at some point in your life, you bow your knee to Him, and you understand you're separated from God, and, and Jesus actually connects you back to the Father through His work on the cross and His resurrection, and you can be new again, and you get. That idea, whether you're young or you're old, and you go, okay, I'm going to trust Jesus. And then what happens is you have this idea of growth. And this is what we think it looks like often, right? It's up and to the right. This is what growth in the Christian life looks like. It's, it's straight up, and I should continue to grow. Because why? Because if you read the Bible, you understand the way that God has set it up. Man, he deposits his spirit inside of us. He gives us all the tools we need to grow. He gives us his word to know him, to understand him. He gives us his people around him called the church to come alongside us, to help us grow. And so we feel like growth should look like this. It's just straight in this direction. And when we mess up or when we don't grow and there's a dip in this line, we start to go, ah, ah. And typically in the Christian circles, what do we do? And we don't grow like this, we hide our sin. We kind of cover it up. We've talked about this before in Colossians. We tend to either pretend or perform that we didn't mess up and, and that really our lives look like that straight arrow. And if we think about growth, like no other growth looks like that. It doesn't look like it. Can you imagine if you're learning how to walk and you are growing into walking and you're one years old and somehow you can understand in your brain and you start to take those wobbly steps and you fall down and you just go, well, I guess this is it. I didn't do it. No, you get back up because every part of growth involves failure. 
But we don't talk about that in the Christian church often. We talk about, oh, it just has to look this specific way. You don't have room to fail. But man, the more I read my Bible, the more I examine my own story, the arrow doesn't look like that, the arrow looks like this. Right? I'm still growing, I'm still moving in a direction where I'm looking more like Jesus, but if I'm honest with myself, there's dips and there's chasms and there's times where I fail and I do something wrong and then there's times where God's grace helps me get back up and then there's sometimes it just feels plateaued and you just don't feel like you're growing at all. But you're moving in a direction. And what we're gonna see in our last snapshot of the story of David, I think is some of this growth. This is chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 4, but it's not already there. We're going to walk through chapter 24. And we're going to see in this last chapter of David's story that, man, David is a human. He's going to fail, but I think he's growing. I think that's what this chapter shows us over time as we've looked at his life from uh, the first time he shows up in the scriptures, his first Samuel chapter 16, he's a shepherd boy, he gets anointed to be the future king, all up until this time. Now, there are um, some pockets after this in 1 Kings chapter 1, chapter 2, David is still around, he's kind of on his deathbed, he does this whole like godfather thing where he tells his son to go kill a bunch of people. And right before that, he says, here's how you honor the Lord. You keep his word. You keep his command. And then he goes, oh, by the way, you should kill these guys. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's integrated. It's, it's strange. You see David doing things the right way by the Lord. And you see him making these decisions. It doesn't make any sense to us. They're incongruent. But it feels like that a lot in life. We were having a conversation as the preaching collective. All 10 congregations get together once a week, and we talk about the text and the chapter, and then we go back and we go, how can we deliver this to our congregations? And in the midst of a week ago, we were talking about this specific passage, and somebody asked or, or put on the table, uh, one of the pastors said, one of my people had said, what are you learning through this whole series? We've been in this series, We Want a King, looking at the life of Saul and David and Sam, uh, Solomon, and he goes, Man, I've just learned that, like, as things get better for Israel and for David, things also get worse. It's like this back and forth seesaw of growth of, like, it's getting better, but it's also getting worse. And that really feels like how life is if we're honest with each other. And so that's what we're going to see in this passage, in this, in this chapter. Because we're asking ourselves, what does it actually look like to grow? What does that apple tree need to grow that I was envisioning in my backyard? Anytime we talk about plants, what do plants need to grow. They need light, they need water, they need a good soil, and then they need time. And somebody early on in my Christian journey when I was in college was showed me this equation for what does it mean? What, what ingredients do you need to grow in the Christian life? And they said, man, you need grace, you need truth, and you need time. You need grace and truth and time. All those elements you need as you grow into the likeness of the person of Jesus. And often we want to subtract some of those elements, but we need all three to grow. So what we're going to see in this chapter is markers or indicated, indicators of David's growth, even though it's still messy. We're going to see three things if you're taking notes. Uh, we're going to see the speed of his repentance in this chapter as an area of growth. We're going to see the depth of his understanding of who God is as a marker of growth in his life. And then we're going to see the cost of obedience as a marker, an area that we see David's life is growing, even if it's this crooked arrow, it's still going the right direction. 
So let me sum up the story. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just give you a brief uh, synopsis of what's happening here, and then we'll go back into the text and kind of look at it line by line, because this is a weird story, like a lot of the Old Testament era that we've been in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Here's what happens. Again, let me just sum it up, and then we'll go back and to look at these three layers of David's growth. The first thing we see in the text is God is angry. Now, we don't know why he's angry. The text doesn't tell us why he's angry, which is often confusing for us. It doesn't seem to make sense. And this is not exactly in chronological order, because if you've been reading along, first, or 2 Samuel chapter 23, is the, the subtitle is David's Last Words. So this chapter is doing something to wrap up the entire book of 1 and 2 Samuel in chapter 24. There's a reason that it's laid out this way. So God is angry. We don't know why. And it says that the Lord incites David to take a census. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, 1 Corinthians, or 1 Chronicle, Chronicles, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament also gives this version of the story in chapter 21. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it starts the same, but it actually says Satan tests David. So we don't exactly know what's going on here. I'm assuming it's like Job, if you're familiar with that book, that the Lord is over all these things and Satan comes and says, I want to test your guy. And the Lord says, okay, you can do it because he's over that. And so David gets tested to take this census. Now, a census is counting people. Uh, Exodus 30 uh, verse 12 says this isn't wrong, but there are wrong ways to do it. So David takes this census, he counts up the people that have swords, which we'll realize why that's problematic in a minute, but then he realizes his mistake. In chapter 10, he is strucken, his heart is convicted from what he has done, and the way Eugene Peterson says, uh, verse 10, he says it this way in the message, he says, but when it was all done, David was overwhelmed with guilt because he had counted the people, replacing trust with statistics. So David trusts how many men he has to fight instead of trusting the Lord. And because of that, he gets convicted, and right away he confesses. He doesn't have anybody call him out. He knows what he's done is wrong. He confesses this, and God sends the prophet to give him his consequences. Gad shows up, says, here's the problem. You did wrong by the Lord. You have three options, door number one, door number two, door number three. It's real weird, right? Like, he gets to choose his punishment. David does. And in the midst of that, the, the first door is you have famine for three years in the land. The second door is you are going to be on the run from your enemies for three months. And then the third door is there will be a plague for three days on the land. We see David picking his punishment. We'll see why he picks it the way he does. But there's still consequences of his sin. The story tells us that 70,000 men die because of this plague. He chooses door number three. Again, talk about why that's uh, the reason he does that. And so even in the midst of the consequences of sin, David doesn't just sit back like we've seen in other chapters and kind of reserve to this kind of apathetic, like, well, I don't know what to do. But he actually moves towards this dependence and saying, how can I kind of begin to right this wrong? And he goes to make a sacrifice, and it costs him. In the midst of that cost, the end of the story says the Lord responds to David's sacrifice, and he stops the plague. So that's the general narrative. Let's go back into it and unpack uh, what we see specifically and then what we see in these areas of growth, these three areas. So verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 24, it says this. Again, the Lord, or the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, 
and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Joab's like, I don't want to do that. Now, it's an off-ramp for David, right? David doesn't take it. We don't know exactly why Joab doesn't want to do it. It could be that he goes, well, this isn't what the Lord wants. Or he could be like, I just don't want to do this. Like, we'll see. It's a nine-month journey that Joab takes his men. I think Joab's going, I don't want to do this because of his character and what we've seen in him. We don't know. But he's going, ah, this doesn't sound like a good thing. Verse 4 says, but the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king and, the, and to number the people of Israel. Verses five through seven uh, basically talk about this big clockwise circle that they do in Israel. I'm not gonna name all the cities because that would be not good for any of us, okay? But they take this big clockwise circle and they do this census. It takes about nine months in the midst of it. Verse eight, pick it up there. It says, so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Let's stop there just to pause and look at how we see David's growth even in this story, right? Because he still sins, still makes a mistake. There's still going to be consequences we're going to see. But what I think we see from the history of David is the speed of his repentance. Remember, as we've looked at David's sin in the past in 2 Samuel chapter 11, as the narrator's been dropping these hints at the beginning of 2 Samuel, when David takes power, his character starts to erode, specifically with objectifying women and not holding to the king's value of taking other wives. He starts to do that. It starts to erode, and it builds to this point of 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you're familiar with it, where David falls off the deep end, where he sexually abuses Bathsheba. And then he tries to cover it up. You remember that? She brings Uriah back and says, hey, take care of this with your wife. And he doesn't do it. And so he ends up putting Uriah on the front lines and killing him. He tries to cover up his sin. And it's not until the prophet Nathan comes to him in chapter 12 and says, hey, I know what you did, that David turns and confesses and repents. But what do we see in this chapter? We don't see anybody coming to David. We see David on his own realizing what he has done and confessing and saying, I did something wrong. The speed of his repentance is quicker, and that's growth. Even though he has messed up, even though he's sinned, he's realizing it quicker. He doesn't need somebody to come and tell him, hey, you did this wrong. He isn't trying to cover it up. He's repenting of it. How do we grow faster at something we're trying to learn? Go ahead and watch this video of these experts doing things quickly. Watch this video. Man, these people are really good at their job, <laughs> right? What if we could confess and repent like that, that quickly, that accurately? How do we learn how to do that? 
If you're familiar with anything that you're trying to learn to do quicker and you're trying to look to do it efficiently, it's repetition. Right? Repetition is the mother of all learning. The more we do it over and over and over again in an accurate way, the quicker we get at doing the job we're meant to do. My middle son, Logan, is a senior in high school, and he is coaching a sixth grade club basketball team. And he coaches on Mondays and Wednesdays. He didn't ask for my help when he's coaching. He certainly doesn't need my help, but I'm helping him, right? So, so I go to practice, and I'm, I'm like the grandparent. It's awesome because Logan does all the hard work. He does all the planning, and I just get to show up and kind of mess around with the kids and have fun with them and, like, distract them. And Logan's like, stop. And so um, it's a ton, a ton of fun. I played basketball. Logan plays basketball. It, it's, it's really, really fun. Well, about a week ago, uh, one of our games on Saturday, these sixth grade kids, man, they just started to get it. We've been doing these same things. Every practice, we start with the same drill, the same drill over and over and over again. The kids don't really get it, but they're doing it over and over again. And then finally, it came together in a game. They're actually doing all the things that Logan has been pressing them to do every single day in practice. And it was beautiful to watch. Because repetition is the mother of all learning. You have to continue to go after it and do it again and do it again and do it again. But often we don't think that's the way we grow. If we're honest with ourselves in the Christian life, we feel like we've trusted Jesus and we should just be that straight and narrow line. That should all be the way we grow and we don't forget. Like you have to put in time to repent, to confess over again, over again, over again. I grew up in the 80s and... Um, for whatever reason, like the birthday parties in the 80s, like it was going bowling. Yeah. Like that was the thing. For those of you who grew up in the 80s, you knew that. It was like, oh, it's a birthday party. Oh, you're going bowling. Okay. And so I wasn't very popular. So I only got invited to a couple parties a year. So I was only bowling maybe two or three times a year. And I remember going bowling with, you know, you had the pizza and all the things and then you would bowl. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm terrible at bowling. I would get frustrated why I wasn't good at bowling, and some other guy has his own ball, and he's just, like, you know, like every, he's just creaming me. And then I remember going back like a year later going, okay, it's been a year. I should be better. I'm stronger. I'm more focused. You know, I'm 10, right? Like, I, I should be better at bowling. And then I would get up, and I would do the same thing, and it would, like, go into the gutter or maybe hit one pin. And I would be frustrated that I wasn't better in a year but I hadn't been practicing at all. I just thought somehow I would magically grow and I would magically get better, and that's not how growth works. And some of us, we show up to church on Christmas or Easter, or maybe we go to a small group once or twice a year, and we think, oh, we should just be growing in our relationship with God. And then we're frustrated because, man, we just really haven't grown, and we see these other people that are really growing, and we get kind of compare ourselves to them, and we go, ah. Growth takes repetition. Even in the midst of confession and repentance, it takes repetition to get better at it. This is the reason we have the liturgy structured the way we have in our services every Sunday. We don't bring you in here so we can count numbers and feel good about ourselves. We bring you in here because we all need to practice confession. That's why we do what we do. That's why we have that pocket of time at the beginning of service to go, how have you fallen short? And how do you need to confess that to the Lord? And if you keep coming over time, it's like practice and repetition so that when you get in that situation and you need to confess to that person, you go, man, I blew it. I'm sorry. You're practice up. 
You know what to do because you've been doing it over time, formed over time, repetition over time. We need that to grow. Even in the midst of our failures, we need that peace to grow. We see David quicker to repentance in this chapter. Let's keep going. Verse 11, what else do we see David in the midst of his growth and this crooked line moving upward? Verse 11 says, And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that, you, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Three years of famine come to you in your land. Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Now, you could read this and go, like, those three options, it feels like really the middle option is the only one he's falling into the hands of men. But what a lot of commentators say is, like, if there's a famine for three years in the land, then people, man, they're going to be frustrated with David. They're going to be frustrated with each other. It feels like the only option, that last option, is falling into the hands of the Lord versus falling into the hands of man. And what we see in this interaction is David, as he grows, he grows in the depth of understanding depth of understanding. David, throughout his journey, throughout his life, he's understanding God deeper. He's understanding the character and the nature of God. He's probably also understanding the nature and character of man. As he's been chased, as he's been pursued, as he's been called certain things that are not true, he says, no, I want to fall into the mercy of the hand of God, not into the hand of men. What David really understands is in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, which is the most well-known passage in all of the Old Testament. It's quoted over 27 times in the Old Testament. And in this passage, this is the first time God describes himself in the Old Testament. And he says that he is the Lord. He's a God of mercy and grace. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousands. Just as we talked about in our liturgy, as we sang, this God, he is a God of mercy before he is a God of judgment. He is a God of judgment. He needs to judge rightly to be fair and holy and right. But man, he's a God of mercy. He's merciful to us. And David began to understand this even in the midst of his sin. So how do we grow in our depth of understanding someone else? Even from a human perspective, how do you grow in your relationships? How do you grow deeper into your relationships with other people? It's the same equation of how we grow deeper in our relationship with God. We need time. We need commitment in that relationship that they were trying to grow in, and often it comes through suffering. In the midst of going through suffering with somebody, you begin to grow if you have time and you have commitment, and that's what we need to understand. Because again, often we think that this relationship with God should just be like a microwavable thing, right? You just go, okay, I, I trusted Jesus. I should just be, I should be here with Jesus right away. It's like, man, you can sit in your pajamas, in your office at home, and you can type on your computer, and Amazon Prime will bring you whatever you ask for on your doorstep in one day. You don't even have to do anything. It just shows up. You don't have to get dressed, stay in your pajamas. You go and you get this thing. And that's how we think our relationship with God works. 
or a relationship with people work. Relationships don't work that way. We don't grow that quickly. It just doesn't happen. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes suffering to grow in depth of relationship, to really know somebody in a deep way. And that's what David starts to understand. So the question for us is, how are we investing in our relationship with God? How are you investing in your relationship with God? Are you spending time praying? Are you spending time in God's word, soaking up what he says to be true? Are you spending time with God's people? Or is it just inconvenient and you go, ah, I just didn't get to it today. All of those little things over time, right? Eugene Peterson says it's obedience in the same direction, a long obedience in the same direction that causes growth, that causes discipleship. That's how we learn God over time. It doesn't happen right away. It's not like the apple tree that's going to grow overnight. It doesn't work that way. This takes time, and David has had time with the Lord. And he understands the depth of God's character, of who God actually is. And the more we grow and the more we understand who God is, the better our relationship with God becomes. Because we get to see him for who he really is. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So again, in David's crooked growth, he is faster as a repentance. He is deeper as understanding of who God is. And then let's look at this last one. Pick up the story again in verse 15. It says, So the Lord had sent pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died from the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it's enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Verse 18, and Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go, arise, uh, raise up an altar of the Lord at the, flesh, uh, the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming towards him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king, his face to the ground. And Arana said, why has my lord, the king, come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor for you, from you. Just so you know, the threshing floor is kind of a, a, a solid slab of cement. It's where they would take the grain. This is before machinery, and they would separate the wheat from the chaff. And this is a way to understand and agriculturally how to change things. And it in, ends up becoming where the temple is built as we continue on our story, this specific place. Verse uh, 22, let's pick it up there. Then Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All of this, O king, Arana gives, uh, O king, gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver 
And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. The third area of growth that we see in David's life in this crooked path is the cost of obedience. The cost of obedience. We saw it in verse 24 there. Arana says, David, you're the king. You go ahead and take it. Take all this. Take the bulls. Take my threshing floor. I don't need anything from you. And David responds saying, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. That costs me nothing. What do we learn from this in our path of growing to the Lord? We learn that we grow in obedience to the Lord by sacrifice. By sacrifice. This idea of growing in your relationship with Jesus, man, there's a sacrifice, there's a narrow road that Jesus calls us to, to walk with him in obedience. And in Matthew 13, this one verse that Jesus is giving this parable, and he says, man, the kingdom is like a treasure in the field. You guys know this one, like, it's like a treasure, and, and somebody comes across this treasure, and they hide it, they cover it up, and they go back, and they sell everything they have in sacrifice to go and buy the field and enjoy because they know the treasure in the field is way, uh, way worth more than what they have on their own. So they sacrifice everything, they sell everything so they can have this treasure. And the question for us, if we're honest with ourselves and our relationship with the Lord as we're trying to grow into Him, is your relationship with Jesus costly or is it just convenient? Is your relationship with Jesus costly does it cost you something to walk with Jesus? Or is it just convenient? Like I know I need Jesus for heaven and I've made that decision and then I'm just gonna kinda live my life and if it's convenient, I'll go to church or if it's convenient, I'll do these things but when it starts to become inconvenient, then I don't know. Walking with Jesus and growing with him is costly. And I don't mean costly like you have to do these certain things to earn favor with God or love with God. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't mean costly in that way. I mean costly is that when you love somebody and you're in a relationship with someone, it always costs to love. I was getting ready this morning in our bathroom and we have the sliding door. It's not a closed door in our, in our primary bedroom. And, and my wife is sleeping when I get up early on Sunday mornings. And so I'm kind of tiptoe, I'm like a burglar. I'm just like shaving real quietly. The lights are off. That's probably why I look the way I do, right? Like, and, and I thought about it this morning, like the reason I'm doing that, it's costing me. It's costing me something in that moment because I love my wife. I want my wife to be able to sleep and relax. And even though that's minimal, like in our relationship with the Lord, it ought to be costing us something to walk with Him. Sometimes you're in a place where you don't want to be. You're in a city you don't want to live at. And your cost, there's a cost to that, to follow Jesus, to follow the call. There's a cost in relationship to lay yourself down and lay your pride down and go, you know what, I was wrong. There's a cost to following Jesus. And David realizes that. He doesn't want just a free slate. He goes, no, 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 no. Like, like it has to mean something. There's got to be weight to it. And the more we understand, the more we grow in our relationship with Jesus, the more we ought to understand, man, there's a cost. There's a cost to following Jesus, especially from the world's perspective. But just when you're trying to love people, there's always a cost to that. You're laying yourself down for the good of others. And that's what David begins to realize in the midst of it. 
So again, as we ask this question this morning for us, like, are, are we growing? Do we have the right understanding of growing in our relationship? It's not always this straight line up and to the right. No, it's like crooked and we're messed up and we sin and we get back up. And, but could we get quicker in our repentance? Could we understand God in a deeper way? And do we understand the cost of obedience? All of those things ought to be marked by our growth in our relationship with Jesus. Now, this is hard for us to understand, right? Um, just like my friends that I'm really close with that live in different parts of the country, and then when they come to visit us and they see my kids, they're like, oh, my kids are giants. Like, how do they grow? And I'm like, they look the same to me. Because I'm with them all the time. They're growing incrementally. But when somebody from the outside sees them, they go, oh, man. So sometimes we kind of get on ourselves because we don't feel like we're growing in our relationship with God because we're too close to it. But man, if you are a journaler or you write stuff down or prayers to God, man, if I go back to my journals 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and I look at what I'm writing, I'm like, am I even a Christian? Like, I, I don't know. Like, 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 God has grown me massive amounts. But you know what I do? I still get frustrated because I don't feel like I'm growing because I blow it and I mess up. And I start getting down on myself. Like, oh, I, don't, I don't know about this thing, man. Maybe I shouldn't even be a pastor. I don't know. Instead of going, no, like this is, this is the growth, up and down, up and down, up and down. And am I moving quicker towards repentance? Am I moving quicker towards confession? Am I understanding the depths of who God is? Is he growing in his, under, am I growing in my understanding of him? And am I understanding, man, there is a cost to follow Jesus and I'm willing to pay that cost. That's where we need to be going. That's where God is showing us even in this chapter. And again, even reading those journals, it's not like, oh, how much have I grown? It's like, no, from this point, how much do I want to grow? It's not looking back and getting down on yourself. It's going, okay, now that I know this, let me keep growing in obedience in this same way for a long time. And it takes time. So even in the midst of this last snapshot of David, man, we've been all over with David. It's, we spent 10 weeks in the life of David. And we've seen some unbelievable things that God uses him in. And we've seen some like really tragic, like, oh my goodness, how is this guy the king? And it's integrated in the midst of that. Why is David held up as the best king? He is in tradition, in the Hebrew tradition, it's the star of David, right? Like, like he is kind of esteemed and we kind of get these caricatures of David's life of, man, the really good things. And oh, there was this really bad thing. But man, he is, he is the king. Why is that? The case because again we've talked about this like his behavior is way worse than Saul's behavior and what he does but for whatever reason he's called a man after God's own heart like what is that about and even in first Kings chapter 3 which we'll get to next week Solomon David's son he describes David his father this way he's he's praying to the Lord he says you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David because he walked before you in faithfulness in righteousness and an upright heart towards you and we read the text and we're like Solomon what are you talking about that's not the case with David but when we understand David's heart and we look at the story what we see David's action moving toward when he blows it. He follows God's law. He follows the Torah. And he goes in his repentance, in his brokenness, even if it's not as quick as here, and he offers sacrifice to the Lord because he knows that's how he gets clean. 
It's not based on his past mistakes. It's not based on those things. It's, okay, what do I need to do within God's law, God's parameters at the time to get clean again? And once he does that, he doesn't live in the past. He lives in the future. And he's seen as clean. We don't see Saul doing this at all. Saul kind of makes up this kind of repentance. He doesn't, he's not really heartfelt. He just kind of tells uh, the prophet what he wants to hear. But David understands God, and he understands he has to sacrifice to get right again. And he's seen as clean. As damaging as the things he's done that we see, he's seen as clean because of the sacrifice and God being a God of mercy. That's why David is held up as the best king. He's the best king, the best human king, because... He's not perfect, but he's consistently relying on the mercy of God to make him right and new. And he points to the ultimate coming king that doesn't need to look to the altar to make a sacrifice because he lived a perfect life, but instead becomes the sacrifice who you and I look to when we blow it, when we mess up, and that's Jesus. Verse 17 of this chapter 24, it says this way. It says, And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Do you see how this verse points to the beauty of the coming king in Jesus? Do you see how this verse points to the gospel in David? We find that because of his sin, the king's sin, the sheep die. But when we look ahead at Jesus, we find because of the king's death, the sheep live. And that's you and I. We can be made clean again, just like David. We can be made right again because of who Jesus is. And a sacrifice for us, we can be made clean. We know our arrow goes like this in growth, but when Jesus looks, or when the Father looks at our arrow, he looks at what Jesus has done. It's the perfect straight arrow. Because we're trading our arrow, our messy, bumpy arrow for his arrow. And that's why we do what we do every week, to remind ourselves of that truth. That's why we take communion, anchoring ourselves in that truth of growth. Let's be people that come to that quicker. Let's be people that grow in our depth and our relationship with the Father. Let's be people that understand the cost of obeying Jesus and that it's worth the cost every time. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your goodness to us. I pray you would help us realize that our growth doesn't happen overnight. God, it takes grace, it takes truth, it takes time. And because of your love, you are growing us. Help us walk out of here with areas to grow in, whether it's the speed of our repentance that we can learn how to do that quicker and more efficient, whether it is our understanding of who you are, that you're good and you're merciful, or whether it's understanding the cost of following you because you paid the ultimate cost of your son. So help us understand that as we sing and respond this morning. Make it true in our hearts today. We ask in your name.